Hey Cornerstone, I'm in downtown Louisville, right in front of Moxie Bread Company. They're allowing us to, to shoot this conversation here today. And I'm here with some of our friends. Uh, they're part of Cornerstone. And I want to thank you guys for being a part of this series called Peacemakers, the Ministry of Reconciliation. I want to start with just an easy question that I think will be easy for all of you to answer and everyone else to identify with at home. But how many of you have experienced hostility, and let's say just in the last four years, from someone that you're in relationship with because of the way you vote or the way you voted? How many of you? So I, I work in a fairly homogeneous office environment, very secular, mostly atheist, um, and they know that I'm different, but they just will openly say horrible things about religion in general, about anybody who's not in their worldview politically. And I mean, they know right in front of me, they know that like I am a little more in that category than them. I remember one year coming, we, we were married um, young and in college, coming home for Christmas and um, just talking about what I was learning and how I was processing and what I was thinking. And I was met with some difficult conversations from people that I truly trust and I truly loved and they using things like, oh, you're just becoming one of them or one of the more educated people thinking like this way and that way and don't forget your roots and don't forget who you are and um, you're, and it just, it was not uplifting. But I mean, I think that's a thing in America that I'm not used to being from Canada, right? That it is very much tied to a political party. Like when, when we first like, we didn't even know the terms Republican and Democrat, right? Like, and blue and red. We just, like, when we came, we were, like, we were just in, suddenly, like, thrown into this very polarizing, like, you, you just take a side. It, it was new for us when we came here. It was, like, very, very polarizing, I think is kind of what you are saying. So, first question was, how many of you have been harmed by someone, experienced some hostility? How many of, of us here have actually hurt someone else because Ooh. of what? differences we have politically. That's a less enthusiastic hand Ryan up. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, I mean, just let's stay there for a sec. The same way we've been hurt, we hurt others, right? I mean, it's just so human. But who's got a story of kind of doing something that later on you regret it? Or maybe right now you regret it because you're on camera. <laughs> You know, I'll jump in, it, it, and is related to my dad. Um, it was this last election, and we were polar opposites, and um, and we went back and forth. Like I've never yelled at my dad. Um, we were yelling at each other, and um, I just felt horrible. Like I just, it was not how I wanted to be with him or who I wanted to be with him. And so, time passed, you know, and I not too much time. Um, and I, I called him back and I just apologized from the, the bottom of my heart and said, you know, we do disagree. And um, sometime I'd like to hear more about how, why you think the way you think. And he did share some, but we agreed to not talk about it. And that's, that's great. But I, I just felt horrible about um, my lack of self-control in that moment. Brooklyn and Daniel, I'm interested in your perspective as a couple because you guys grew up in the same town, went to the same school, went to the same church, you've both been Christians a long time, but you share enough values that you married each other. Yet, you guys often in the past have voted differently. How do you guys make that work? I think one of the biggest things that we continue to have open conversations and we continue to press in and we enjoy pressing in 
in some ways and we stay curious with one another. Mm -hmm. And I think when it comes down to it, it's not that we have opposite end goals. It's not that I want human flourishing and she wants human suffering. You know, it's not that I want economic prosperity and she wants everybody to go bankrupt. No. So so like, you know, there are times that we have slightly different approaches of what we think the state should do in regards to some situation, but it's not because we have different end goals. It's because we have different opinions on what we think is the best way to get to that end. Yeah. It almost sounds like it's like focusing on the what can we actually agree on, or what are like the big things we can agree on, rather than in the political spectrum where it's, we focus on what we can't, we disagree on so much, right, rather than what can we agree on. All right, let's get to, I think, what is the most important question, and that is, how does the gospel, if it does, how does the gospel heal the hostility and bridge the gap with all of these divisions, specifically within the church? Um, how does it, if it does, create unity and bring reconciliation between people who at times might see themselves as enemies? You know, we were talking earlier and, you know, I was reflecting on uh, Jesus' command for us to love one another, you know, love our neighbors, and he kept saying, love one another. And when I get stuck in my self-righteous opinion, I'm forgetting that I, there's a human that might see something different. So I see the other as a problem, not as a human, a problem to solve. Um, and what I see the gospel is encouraging us. Christ walked with people that had different opinions. He had dinner with people that had different opinions. And the first step of reconciliation, of nonviolence, is deep understanding. I think the, uh, I mean, the gospel has a lot to say about our identity and who we are as adopted and redeemed sons and daughters. And when we lose track of that, that leaves us very vulnerable to putting our identity in a political party um, or in a cause, you know, and then when somebody attacks a policy, it becomes personal because now it's your identity instead of detaching that from who you are as a child of God. And it's, you know, at the end of the day, if we can't say the kingdom of God is where redemption lies for humanity, then we're missing the point. All right, guys, we appreciate you being here. Uh, this is great, helpful stuff. All right, as we end, we're all going to out ourselves and we're going to say who we're voting for in the presidential election in a couple weeks, all right? So, one is for Biden, two is for Trump, and three is for anyone else, including Peyton Manning, okay? <laughs> all right? All right, all right? We're gonna do it all together on three, all right? Ready. One, two, three. <laughs> you probably thought that we weren't crazy enough to share who we're actually voting for, and you would be right, but uh, we love setting people up. Uh, good to be together today, and I want to start by thanking Amy and John in Brooklyn and Daniel for uh, participating in that conversation and sharing it with you. I think it's a really important time for Christians to be having that very conversation that's not so much about what we're divided over politically, but what we share in common and to even go further than that and be vulnerable and share how we've been hurt 
by the hostility we've experienced from other people, but then to go so far and be humble and say that we ourselves are the ones that have been doing the hurting. That is where healing takes place, and that conversation, I think, is really important. We hope that you'll have more of those uh, in the weeks to come because it is beginning to heat up politically, and this message is not about the political divisions that exist in the world today. This message is uh, continuing in our series on peacemaking. We're after two main things, a motivation to be like Jesus, to live as peacemakers in this world, but second, to gain the skills necessary to actually work towards reconciliation. And so Peacemakers is about the ministry of reconciliation, and we are not just introducing a six-week series to you uh, and the subject, but we're introducing to you a new focus to our church. And so we see this as being part of our future. And so if you miss any of the six messages in this series, as your pastor, I'm asking you to sit down and listen to the messages because this is an important time for our church as we set some new direction and some new emphasis on how we are going to live in this world. And so many of you have been wondering, how are we going to respond towards different issues like the political divide or issues around race? Well, this is part of that answer. And so we want you to be well informed of what it is that we're talking about and what we're doing. But the whole thing starts in Matthew chapter five, those words we looked at last week with Jesus where he said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. The two are meant to be synonymous and blessing the joyful life is meant to come out of living God's way. And there's something to do with peacemaking and having our identity in him, but also experiencing blessing from the Lord. And so I wanna ask a question that I asked last week as we get started, are you a peacemaker? Is it even important to you and if it was, do you have those skills that are necessary to be a part of the work of reconciliation, repairing relationships where you live? I'll, I'll admit I'm not very good at it, and I, I am currently under construction in that area trying to grow. Eugene Peterson kind of shines a mirror on people like us and to churches like ours this way. He says, Jesus brings us home. Jesus brings us together. Jesus breaks down the hostility. Jesus recreates us as a unified humanity. Jesus reconciles all of us to God. Peace is complex and many-layered. A lot of action goes into peacemaking, and Jesus is the action. But here's the puzzle. Then why isn't the church with Christ as its head the most conspicuous place on earth as a place of peace and peacemaking? I think that's a great question. What we talk about here at Cornerstone, the Ministry of Peacemaking, exists to support you, individuals, and your family, and leaders, and our community to be ambassadors of reconciliation within our communities and beyond. We actually believe that this is a prophetic time for us to speak into our culture, into our church, and to bring healing. And so we're after two things, this motivation and also the skills. Now, I think the motivation piece is really important, so uh, we spent some time on that last week, but I want to spend some more time trying to motivate you that this is the way to blessing. This is a way to honor whatever it is that God has done in your life, and I want to tell you a story that a group of us heard a few weeks ago in the Alpha class. So some of us are watching uh, the Alpha series on Friday mornings and discussing the foundations of the Christian life, and this video happened to show up in, under the discussion of why did Jesus have to die? Why is forgiveness important? And the story comes out of the Auschwitz concentration camp in the summer of 1941. On that day, a prisoner escaped. And so you can imagine what took place. The sirens went off. The lights went on. Uh, they sent out the, the search party and the dogs looking for this escaped prisoner. But meanwhile, inside, as retribution for this one prisoner escaping, 
the Nazis selected 10 men who were chosen to die by being placed in the starvation bunker. So what a hellhole to be in, and then they literally find a worse way for people to die in a starvation bunker. The ninth man that was selected to be put in the starvation bunker that day was a Polish man named Francis Gajewiczek. And when he was selected, when he was pointed out from among the crowd, he cried out, he said, oh no, my wife and my child will never see me again. And there was one man in the crowd that day that was so moved by just this cry of despair, it was a Franciscan priest named Maximilian Kobe. He stepped forward and said, I would like to die in place of that man. I would like to take his place in the starvation bunker. I will die in his place. You know, the two men didn't really know each other. They considered themselves strangers. They had met just a couple of months before. So they were both brought into the concentration camp. But it wasn't like a friend dying for a friend. This was someone dying for a stranger. Surprisingly, the Nazis agreed, and they allowed Maximilian Kobe to take Francis Gajewiczek's place, and a couple weeks later, he died in that starvation bunker. 41 years later, Francis Gajewiczek was singled out in St. Peter's Square, Rome. There was 150,000 people there or more, cardinals, bishops. The Pope was getting ready to do a presentation, and he singled out Francis Gajewiczek, and he told the story of why this man was standing there that day. Because Maximilian Kobe had died in his place. It was the moment that they were canonizing, um, venerating Maximilian Kobe. Ceremony in honor of him. But that day, Pope John Paul said, Kobe's sacrifice was a victory like that of our Lord Jesus, who also died in in place of another. And then he looked at the crowd and he said, in place of all of you. And those stories, they still move me. I hope they move you. I hope they sing in your soul because those are the heroes that we need right now. Those are the peacemakers who are willing to lay down their life. Francis Gajewiczek would spend the rest of his life traveling around the world telling anyone who would listen about Maximilian Kobe. In 1994, he visited the United States. There was a a Catholic church that was being dedicated to, to Kobe. And he said, so long as I have breath in my lungs, I would consider it my duty to tell people about the heroic act of love of Maximilian Kobe. And that's exactly what he did for the rest of his life. So here's a question. Can you imagine living most of your life under a context or a narrative like that? How heavy that is. How freeing. Just the the contrast of, is it fair? Is it right? But gratitude as well. What a powerful narrative to live your life within. Now, is that narrative so different from our context today? Right where you're at, wherever you're listening to this message. Are we any different from Francis Gajewiczek? Are we any different? Or has great grace been poured on our life? We live because another died. And in so doing, it changes the way that we live our life. It changes the way that we announce what he has done for us. Now I want to go back to the passage that we breezed through last week because it's really important for this series. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 20. Here's what's happening. Paul is connecting God's love for you, Jesus' sacrifice, the way that we tell people about that, and the ministry and the message of reconciliation, which means the redefinition and the restoration of relationships. That's what reconciliation means. 
So when you've been redeemed to God, God has redefined the relationship with you, but he has also restored it. You are no longer a stranger. You're no longer a foreigner. You now are welcomed at his table as a son and daughter. It's redefined. The distance has been, has, has been closed. There's been a bridge built. He's made a way. The relationship is now repaired. But all of those things connect to our ministry of reconciliation. This is what it says. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. What a challenge that is, right? Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself and Christ not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. New creation, compelled by God's love. He's making his appeal through us. How are all these things connected? By us understanding reconciliation. Being reunited, restored to God and to others. You know, you've been given many things if you've said yes to Jesus. Even if you haven't said yes to Jesus, God is giving you many things. But if you said yes to Jesus, the blessings just continue to pile up on your life. But one of those things that he's also given you is he's given you a message to tell with your life. And he's given you work to do. And this work here is defined by the, re- the, the redefinition, the redefining and the restoration of relationships. It's the essence of what it means to be Christian. To be peacemakers. Now, because this is something that has not been taught on a lot, and I'll admit I have not spent enough time teaching on this in our church, I want to spend the rest of my time sharing with you six principles that we believe come right out of the scriptures that help create peacemaking. This is what Jesus did. These are the skills that he used. This is the posture and the attitude that he engaged with people. If you want to be good at peacemaking, these are the things that you want to grow in. These are the things you want to ask the Holy Spirit to help you grow in. To put to death the opposite and bring to life these things. And, you know, you could find, if you study reconciliation within the Christian and Jewish tradition, you could find a number of different lists of these are the principles. We've tried to pull the best from many of those lists as we've studied this subject over the last several months. Um, But this at least is a good start for us. So let me share them. First of all, to be a peacemaker... Whether this is with, within groups that are hostile to each other or it's as personal as a conflict that's taking place in your own home or with a good friend or even with a stranger, okay? These are the principles. So number one, there is a dependence on the presence of God. An absolute dependence on the presence of God that is with you and with the other person or the other people. Number two, there needs to be a shared kingdom vision of reconciliation. So, of course, this is something that God's people share, a shared vision of the kingdom. So this is reconciliation within the family of God. Number three, we have to be willing to articulate the hostility and also listen to it. Number four, we need to learn to practice empathy as a way to understand and as a way to listen. Number five, personal responsibility is essential Describe those acts of responsibility in a moment, but they're things like forgiveness, confession, repentance, change. That's number five. And then number six, 
is we have to learn to honor the person and the process. And so I'm going to go through all of these. You might want to write them all down. Or maybe today God is just wanting you to kind of focus in on one or two. I give myself C's and D's on all six of them. So not that it's a report card for you, but it is for me. Whatever God wants to say, we want to hear from him. So number one, to be a peacemaker, we have to be people who focus on the presence of God. And so there's so much to this subject. But as it relates to peacemaking, we believe in the healing power of Jesus. We believe in resurrection. We believe in resurrections, plural. We believe in the renewal and revival of all, all things, including dead things, which means dead and broken relationships, estranged relationships. Let's just start there. We believe that God can bridge the gap and heal relationships. We believe that God can heal a broken marriage. We believe that God can redeem a relationship between uh, parents and their children. We believe God can heal relationships between different races. We believe God can heal relationships with, with, among people who have different political persuasions. Because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and in me. And so we believe in the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And we believe in the peaceful presence of Jesus that, that makes us and has us acting different when we connect to that. And we believe in the assuring presence of the Father who's always whispering to us who we are. See, I say all that because we need God's presence. And often we go into conflict. We go into these moments of dealing with hostility. We go into these conversations disconnected from the presence of God. And we are not resourced enough on our own. And we're in trouble. We need resource by someone else to do something that is unnatural for us. I'll tell you what's natural for me. Conflict, bitterness, unforgiveness, division, these are all natural things to me. Some of you would say, well, that's because you're an eight. But what's natural to many of you is passive aggressiveness and hiding and shame. See, these are the things that are natural to us. And we need an outside power, an outside presence to help resource us. See, we struggle with all of this. This is why it's hard to move towards another person that you're in conflict with. It's why it's hard to be vulnerable and share how you've been hurt by another. This is why it's hard to sit and to listen to someone else tell you how you've harmed them. This is why it's hard to move toward, through that mutual hostility to find common ground. It's why it's hard to be empathetic. It's why it's hard to not be triggered. I mean, I could go on and on. It's why it's hard to not judge someone's motives. It's why it's hard to change. It's why it's hard to forgive. Those are heavenly characteristics. We struggle with these things, and often it's because we are not connected to the ultimate peacemaker who is with us and willing to resource us and to help us out. Let me illustrate it this way. The power of having someone with you. Several years ago, I was coaching at a middle school here in Boulder, and I came into the office one day getting ready to have practice, and one of the, the boys on the team, Jose, came up to me and said, Coach, I've been kicked off the team by the athletic director. And, I, I, and he was just trying to walk out of the room, and I said, sit down and tell me what happened. And he didn't want to say anything. He just said things like, you know, he hates me, uh, he doesn't like me. And I said, no, tell me what's going on. And he went on to tell me that he's missed a number of days of school in the last month. And so because of that, the principal came to him and said, hey, you can't be on the team. And all of this actually made sense. And I asked him, I said, why are you missing school? And he didn't want to tell me. And so I kept pressing him. I said, tell me, I, I want to listen. I want to hear what's going on. 
And as he sat there and resisted, tears began to well up in his eyes. And he said, he said, coach, I can't come to school. My mom's job has changed. She's a single mom and I have to take care of my two-year-old sister. And I asked him, I said, did you tell Mr. So-and-so, I won't use the name, did you tell him what was going on at home? I, I know that he would understand. I know that there's something that we can work out so that you can be in school, help take care of your sister, and, and stay on the team. He said, no, he doesn't want to listen to me. I'm afraid to go in there and talk to him. See, that room just rep- represented authority and discipline to him. And I said, would it be different if I went with you? And if I go with you, I'm there to support you. So would it make a difference if I went with you to support you, to sit there with you and just help you express what was going on? And he thought about it for a moment. He said, yeah, I think it would help. So that day went to the principal's office. And he shared what was going on and grace was extended. Sometimes all we need is someone's peaceful presence. Now much more than someone needing a friend or a coach, we need the presence the ultimate peacemaker who comes in and helps us. And so connecting to the presence of God is number one. Number two, to experience reconciliation within God's family, we need to be reminded and hold together a shared kingdom vision. This is the grand vision of Jesus, the renewal of all things, which includes the healing of all relationships. So all things will be revived. All things will be renewed. Relationships will be healed. These are the things that take place in the kingdom, and you belong to that. We belong to a new kingdom with a new vision and new allegiance. And you belong to a new family with a new identity and character. And you belong to a new body with purpose and direction. All of these things are uniting factors. So even though you may be very different from the person that you're in the middle of this hostility with, when it's reconciliation within the family, you have a shared kingdom vision. Let's say you're in a moment of uh, dealing with conflict with someone who doesn't share this kingdom vision. You know what? You still do, though. And you know where God is taking the story. God is taking the story towards healing. And so you can show up in that moment connected to his vision. Now, and until and unless we see what God is doing regarding he- the healing of hostility between people, how he's bridging gaps, he's redefining things and bringing people together, until we join him in that, we will actually work against him. And that's often what's taking place within churches and in our church today. We are working against him. Now, here's an example that we see happening often today, and it has to do with politics. So today, you know, we're using the illustration of of politics as that divisive place. We actually think it's a great testing ground, a practice place to be peacemakers. There's nothing wrong with politics. There's nothing wrong with being a part of a party. There's nothing wrong with being passionate about your vote. There's nothing wrong with giving your money to a, a particular campaign. But what happens, and this is what's very enticing to us right now in our culture, is we are putting too much hope and love and allegiance in certain visions that are different from the kingdom of God. We're putting our hope in certain people who are flawed. We're putting uh, our hope and our trust in certain visions that are less than the kingdom of God. We are wasting our best energy and our passion on things that are less than the kingdom. And what else is happening is we're exhausting ourselves being offended and angry all the time. And the truth is, both the conservative agenda and the liberal agenda are competing visions for the kingdom of God. In some ways, they stand in opposition. Why? How do we know that? Because they wish to divide. 
There's winners and losers. Reconciliation is not the goal. Power is. Both parties will use shame as a tool to hold on to power. Which is even more of a reason why we need peacemakers to enter into the political realm. My point here is that those visions are too small. And one of the reasons there's so much division in the world is because we are making those the highest vision. So we need reminded that we share a kingdom vision together. That's number two. Number three, we need to be willing to articulate the hostility and sit and listen to it. Now this one is really, really important because this is how Jesus brings about peace. Jesus doesn't just get quiet and try to be peaceful. Jesus understands that the reason there is no peace is because there's actually hostility. Sometimes that hostility is caused by sin. Sometimes that hostility is just caused by life and opinions and different perspectives. But Jesus knows that there is no peace without dealing with the hostility. In Ephesians chapter 2, it actually says that he removes the dividing wall between us and God and us and other people. This is an absolute essential part of the reconciliation process. Have you ever found yourself in one of those weird relational moments where, you know, someone that you're connected to, things aren't right. You know that they're not feeling good about you, and you know that they know that you're not feeling good about them. Let's make it personal. Maybe you gossiped about them, and you found out that they found out, and there hasn't been a conversation to clean any of that up yet. And you might act polite and cordial and smile at each other, but there is no peace. Because the hostility has not been named, it has not been dealt with, it hasn't been listened to. For those two years Elisa and I spent in marriage counseling, I, the counselor did a lot of talking to me. I did a lot of listening. I did a lot of listening to Elise. And one of the things I would hear her over and over again is she would articulate the hostility. It was hard for her to do. It was even hard for her to name. It was hard for her to get out that I made her feel very small. I was too critical. And it was hard for me to sit and listen to it. But it's absolutely essential for our marriage to be healed. So hostility has to be named. It's just like the phrase with sin. You have to name it to tame it. You need to confess it. The same is true with hostility. It needs to be shared. Number four, empathy is the path to understanding. So understanding and listening and being curious are all kind of uh, popular things right now, especially around the discussions around race. Those are all very good things. But empathy goes to a whole nother level. Empathy is the capacity or the ability of a person to understand and feel what another person feels, or at least imagine that. It means to put yourself in their position to use their frame, their perspective to understand things. So this is difficult to do. That's why empathy is a powerful tool. Empathy is an expression of love. Empathy is also an expression of humility. So this means listening and being curious, but it goes further than that because empathy allows us to imagine ourselves in the very same position that that person is in. And this is just like Jesus. The gospel is full of empathy, so much so that he didn't just imagine the hostility and the suffering and the division that we live with, but he became like one of us. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He literally walked in our shoes. He gave the great empathetic path for us to, to follow in. 
So you can sit and listen to someone to just understand how they have an illogical argument. But empathy has you listening. It has you understanding to see how a person could actually come to that conclusion. You may not agree, but it is an expression of respect. Empathy is a powerful tool in the ministry of reconciliation, working through conflict. One of the things I hear a lot right now regarding the political discussion is I've heard it probably a hundred times. People say, I can't believe anyone or so-and-so would vote for that person. Or I can't believe anyone would vote for that. I can't believe a Christian would vote that way. I hear this all the time. When I hear that now, I know that they have not spent the time to be empathetic. Because I can tell you, at this church, you can find a lot of wonderful people who disagree with you or think differently than you. Have you sat down to listen to where they're coming from so that you can get past that place of judgment and superiority for your views? I listened to a really um, incredible debate a few weeks ago uh, between two Christian scholars debating why Christians should vote again for President Trump and why Christians should not vote for President Trump. Both arguments were compelling. I could see why someone would go either way. So we need to be empathetic. It's a really good book out right now called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion by John Haidt. He says this, people blind themselves into political teams or bind themselves into political teams that share moral narratives. In other words, they believe in these alternative visions. And once they accept a particular narrative, they become blind to the alternative moral worlds. You could add they become blind to the other person or the other story. Empathy opens our eyes to the other. And what are we after? We're after restored relationships. Number five, each person that's involved in the conflict or in the work of reconciliation, however you want to describe it, each peacemaker learns to take appropriate responsibility. So there are certain tools that we're given in the scriptures that, that are, are the weapons and the tools of reconciliation. Things like lament, lament for someone's loss and pain. Forgiveness, confession, repentance, asking um, for forgiveness, an apology. And there are certainly many times in our, all of our lives when we have to own the harm that we've caused other people. When we have to show remorse and apologize and more importantly repent and change the harmful behavior stops. Last week I told you about the shameful email I sent to the Chassa board. I needed to apologize. That was part of taking responsibility to repair the relationship. I needed to communicate remorse and my willingness to make amends and more importantly do the things that it would take in the inner life to never send an email like that again. Because I was responsible for that conflict. Now what happens when that occurs The beauty of the gospel shines very bright in the midst of your weakness and your sin. Because you're taking responsibility. Now, let me go a little further. One of the true tests of a peacemaker is someone who takes responsibility for the hostility that exists that they did not cause themselves. Okay, I'm going to tell you Amazing quote, and then I'll read the whole thing to you in a moment. But Abraham Heschel said this. He said, some are guilty, but all are responsible. So apply that to some of the social debates taking place right now in our country. Some are guilty, 
but all are responsible. Peacemakers see the hostility and they move towards it, even if they didn't cause it. They look at the things taking place in our culture and they understand ending racism will not come through simply blaming others in the past. Anti-Semitism will not end simply by condemning the Holocaust. Sexism will not be healed by the dead. Those things will be healed by the living. The faithful peacemakers who will walk and do what Jesus did, he will assume responsibility for a problem that he did not cause. He will assume responsibility and begin to act for divisions that he did not contribute to. He will take responsibility for the healing of something that is sick that he had no part of. I learned this about 10 years ago here at Cornerstone. Gene was taking our church through something that was actually profound now. And now that we kind of look at what's taking place in our world today, I'm so grateful for this because it's a model for us today. But Gene was taking our church through a narrative that existed that we didn't know existed. A hostile narrative between Christians and Jews. Most Christians that I know have no hostility towards Jews, but many Jewish people grow up with a narrative that's based in history that Christians are against them. Because at certain times in history, Christians have harmed them and hurt them and killed them. And, you know, I mentioned the Holocaust early on. You know, those Sundays in those camps, guess what the guards were doing? They were going to church and singing hymns. So when this was being shared, there was kind of this rumbling like, is everyone guilty? We knew that we needed to do something to repair that relationship so that this could be a safe place for Jewish people to come and follow Yeshua, to follow Jesus, their Jewish Messiah. But how did we act? And the Heschel quote helps so much. Here's the full quote. He says, there is immense silent agony in the world, and the task of man or woman is to be a voice for the plundered poor to prevent the desecration of the soul and the violation of our dream of honesty. The more deeply I'm immersed, the more deeply immersed I become in the thinking of the prophets, speaking of the Jewish prophets, the more powerfully it became clear to me what the lives of the prophets sought to convey. That morally speaking, there is no limit to the concern one must feel for the suffering of other human beings. That indifference to evil is the worst of all evils in itself. And that in a free society, some are guilty, but not all are responsible. Or some are guilty, but all are responsible. So if we go back to that first motivation, what Jesus has done for us, aren't we glad that he took responsibility for a conflict that he didn't cause? This is what it means to be a peacemaker. Peacemakers do not focus on where the offense comes from or where it started. Peace work, peacemaking works in the present towards restored and redefined relationships in the here and now. This is a helpful model for us right now as we're dealing with other hostilities. Not all are guilty, some are, but all of us are responsible. That's number five. Number six, last one. We honor the person in the process. So not everyone is where you are. Many of you right now are excited. Even after one week, I got a lot of emails and texts this week, more than usual, of you trying to reach out to certain people in your life. And I'm excited about that. I'm glad you're doing it. I'm praying for you. Every email or or text I get, I'm praying for you and those people by name. But I can tell you, not everyone is where you are. Not everyone is excited 
and is willing to have the hard conversations right now. In fact, you might experience a disappointment as you reach out, but that's okay. That's why Romans chapter 12, verse 18 is helpful. It's practical. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. What are you responsible for? Dallas Willard says, but under God's rule, there is recognition that bringing good people who are in the wrong together shows the divine family resemblance. But those good people usually are made up of two people who are wrong. And this reflects what God does because God moves towards the ungrateful and the wicked. The peacemaker deals precisely with the ungrateful and the wicked as anyone who has tried to well knows. So what this means is that we have to also be loving and humble with people because they are in process as well. They may not be where you are. They may not be as passionate about an issue as you are. They may not be as willing and as motivated to restore the relationship. But that does not change our movement towards them. And so understanding that there is a process and respecting that person in the process is very important to keep us moving towards others. All right, so those are the six. And um, I'm going to give you a few ideas of how to practice those this next week or the weeks to come. So I'm going to give you certain challenges. Maybe you can just adopt one of these for the, for the coming weeks because, of course, we need to practice these things to grow as peacemakers. The first one comes from a friend of mine, Janice. She shared this with me a few weeks ago. It comes from an organization called the Better Angels, and they... Um, had a, a challenge and a pledge that went out all over the country and many people signed it and that, for, that is for 40 days that you would not speak anything hostile about another person or a group of people, which includes what we would call harmless gossip. 40 days of not speaking badly about people. So if you were to start that this week, it would take you to December. Let me encourage you, when you fail on day one, if this is your challenge, stay at it. Some of you might want to join the discussion that's taking place Monday and Tuesday night this week as we discuss the divisiveness around politics and how the church needs to rise above that and to make another way. Many of you need to come and be a part of that discussion and to use these principles. Maybe some of you need to just focus in on one of these six, the presence of God, shared kingdom vision, articulating the hostility, practicing empathy, taking responsibility, or honoring the person one of these things needs to be your focus in the weeks to come. But this is where God wants you to practice. This is where God wants you to grow. This is God, where God will show you more of his character as you act like a son and daughter as you resemble him. All right. So as I close, um, I want to do something. I want to connect all these ideas, forgiveness, reconciliation today, with one of our favorite practices at Cornerstone and within the Christian tradition, we call it communion. So if you have your elements, you can grab those. And you know, when you read the New Testament, there's not a lot of instruction about how to do this right or wrong. We've turned it into some big, kind of scary, sacred moment. But it's actually meant to be shared at tables among people and friends and family and strangers. It's very hard to take communion in the wrong way. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, it says this, So then whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. 
What is Paul saying here? I don't have time to read the whole passage, but let me tell you what preceded this. He's writing to a church that's full of divisions, undealt with hostility, bitterness, unforgiveness, arrogance, self-righteousness. He's talking to a church just like every church that's ever existed. And he's saying, you know what's unworthy about you sharing in God's, in a moment where you remember his forgiveness and his reconciliation of you? You know what's so unworthy about that is you live divided. You live with hate in your heart toward your brother or toward your sister. I mentioned this this summer in one of the, our Sundays, but there was this tradition that began to occur around the, the New Testament church that when people would gather together to do what we're doing today, to remember the Lord's death, before that would happen, people would get up and they'd walk around the room and they'd go to the people in the room that they had a problem with or who had a problem with them. And they'd ask for forgiveness. And they'd give forgiveness. And they'd move towards their enemies. This is how God makes his appeal through us. So as we are grateful today, and we remember what God has done for us, I also want to offer you the gift of forgiveness. One last story. I want to read you some of the words of Corey Tim Boom. Many of you have heard of her before. She's one of those faithful saints that have gone before us. She's put in one of those concentration camps. Her sister and her dad died there. After the war, she went around Europe and the United States talking about forgiveness. And on one evening, she's speaking to a crowd of people. And as the, the service ends, she goes up in front to greet people as she often did. And one of the former guards comes to her. And wants to talk to her and engage her. And this is what she said. This describes the gift of forgiveness. Not that you would be forgiven by God, which you certainly have been, but that you might forgive others. That is a gift. This is what she said. I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors. And my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No. He didn't remember me, she says. But since that time, the guard went on to say, he, he, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there. But I'd like to hear it from your lips as well. Again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I who sins every day had to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy, who was her sister, had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking it could not have been more than many seconds that I stood there with his hand held out, but it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing that I'd ever had to do, which was forgive. I knew that it was not, not only a command of God, but as a daily experience since the, since the end of the war, I had, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives no matter what the physical scars. But those who nursed the bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. You know what she's describing? The blessing of being a peacemaker, of being someone who can forgive. And still I stood there with coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and it can function regardless of the temperature of your heart. I said, Jesus, help me. 
I can lift my hand, I can do that much, but you supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did it, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole body, my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried out with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I'd never known God's love so intensely as I did then. These are the stories we need to tell our kids. This is the Jesus life. And so as we take the elements together, this is his body broken for you, this is his blood poured out for you. This is the means by which God was able to offer forgiveness and pardon for you. But he is reminding you today of the gift of forgiveness that you can offer someone else. So let's take the bread. And the cup. And as we go to the quiet place of prayer, just give you a moment to thank God for what he's done for you. You live because another one died. You live because there was a peacemaker who moved towards you, who experienced, showed empathy, who dealt with hostility, who took responsibility, who honors your process, who depended on the spirit all along the way, who shared the kingdom with you. Father, we thank you that we're forgiven, that we're redeemed, restored, renewed. Speak your own words of gratitude to him. And then hear his words again, offering you the gift of forgiveness. As you release someone that you've held for a very long time in your heart and your head, as you forgive. Just quietly in your heart, say their name. Father, we want to continue to ask for help next few weeks. We need your help. We need to learn another way. Teach us to be peacemakers. May we live inspired with full hearts, knowing what you've done for us. May we be so generous that we're willing to share the mercy and grace you've shown us, the forgiveness you've shown us. Help break through those things that are long and old. Bring healing. And lastly, Lord, I want to bless any attempt by anyone that's listening to this message or the, the messages over this series as they're moving towards those that they're estranged from, those relationships where there is hostility. Father, we, play, we pray blessing on those. We ask for your healing touch. And we pray that you would do a miracle as you often have. We thank you for this time and we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.